this morning we have the privilege of hearing God's Word uh, preached to us by Bobby Griffin, who's an associate pastor at City Prez in Oklahoma City, one of our sister churches. And so, Bobby, thank you for being with us today. I'm used to the 5 p.m. thing, so uh, morning church. I'm normally just getting up to rest. Um, Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We will, uh, I'll read verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Um, Blake had asked that he said that you guys are going through a series about the church and asked that I would speak on, on something similar to that, and so we will do that today, um, thinking about what is our role in um, the world in which we live, and what better place than the Beatitudes. So here, Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Please pray with me. Lord God, we come to you this morning asking that this would not just be information that we take in, but that your spirit would use it and transform our lives so that we may be salt and light in this world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in a meeting uh, in Oklahoma City. It was a non-church related meeting, and I was with a prominent business person in OKC, And there's always this awkward time when I meet new people, when they ask the question, so what do you do? And so after we sort of exchanged, you know, I said, oh, I'm a pastor. After after we exchanged that little greeting, the conversation went on and was really awkward. And there was a strange vibe. uh, And I could tell that there was something odd between this person, like there was a bridge between he and I. We were just different, I guess. I don't know. But this is a common thing that happens sometimes. Um, And to be honest, when I get the what do you do question, occasionally I try to think, is there another answer I could give? Like, oh, I'm a social critic uh, for a nonprofit in downtown. We're new. But that wouldn't be honest. Um, So later that night, I look up my new awkward almost friend on Twitter and click the follow button, and within five minutes, they send me a message back, and they said, I'm really not sure you want to follow me. I tweet a lot about leftist politics. It might offend you. Now, why in the world would anyone have a disclaimer like that? It wasn't like he said, I tweet a lot about atheism, or I tweet about how I hate Christians. It was about politics, and I think it has to do with some of the things that we'll talk about today. A lot of people think that Christians, um, people who identify with Christ and are a part of his church, 
we, that we live in this straitjacket, right? And I think in the U.S., many people think that, oh, well, if you go to a church, isn't that just the religious wing of the Republican Party? Or, oh, you go to church, you must be really boring. Or, oh, you go to church, so you're one of those hypocrites who do these things. Um, people think that Christianity offers no freedom, that we follow these old arcane texts with strict rules and we're just eager to enforce them on everyone else. People sometimes say that Christianity, especially the church, is just full of hypocrisy and full of people who can't follow their own rules and have scandals. And so here's the question. Does, is what we're doing today, is it keeping us in some sort of moral or religious straitjacket? Is what we're doing today and throughout the week good for Owasso? Is it good for society? And lastly, what do we do with the Christians among us who are hypocrites? Because I would imagine we all have those stories. And so three things. And this is kind of a topical-ish sermon, which is unusual for me and probably uh, for you as well if you have been at Trinity Owasso for a while. First thing is we'll talk about freedom. And then the second thing, we will talk about society. And thirdly, we will talk about hypocrisy. And so freedom, society, and hypocrisy. And so the first thing is Christianity or the church and freedom. For many people who are critical of the church, they say, well, once you join, it comes with a set of limitations. And if, you're, if you would say that you're a Christian, it takes away your freedom to be yourself. And this is a pretty pervasive argument, especially in our country, because after all, we're the nation that says we have liberty and justice for all, right? We're founded with the idea that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights. We have commercials that sell products like Dodge cars and trucks that say America was built on two things, cars and freedom. And so that we have this love affair with freedom. And it seems that once you become a Christian or and are committed to a church, people who are outside say, wow, you've just given up your right to be yourself. And so a lot of people think that Christianity takes away our rights. For instance, many people will say that Christianity is incompatible with certain professions like being in the arts or being a bartender or an actor or a musician. Then they will criticize us and say, well, you guys have so many moral positions that seem to take away our freedom. Many people today will say, well, Christianity and the church have these weird sexual ethics that seem to be out of step with society. And to add more fuel to the fire, they say, well, the church claims that it has truth, like the big kind of truth, the capital T truth. And so from this perspective, people say, well, that's nice that you're a Christian, but isn't it kind of out of date and behind the times and sort of the enemy of your personal freedom? 
can't really find yourself in this, they would say. But let's talk about this for a second. What does freedom actually mean? In the United States and in Oklahoma, we think about it as sort of democracy, right? We, we expect we're, we, we're raised to have this level of autonomy and to be independent. And we think that it's natural to seek self-improvement and have self-determination. But really, these ideas aren't universal. In fact, people, some countries even critique our own and say, wow, you guys are so uptight. You don't let anyone do anything. And then other countries will say, wow, you guys let people do too much. And so sometimes freedom is just a matter of where you're at. And we have to be honest, no one has unlimited freedom anyway. It only goes so far. But back to Christianity. If you want full autonomy and to do whatever you want, Christianity seems dead set against that idea. You can't just think what you want. You can't just do whatever you want. But here's a question. Is there any group that offers complete freedom to do what you want? Anyone. Because every group has boundary lines, even the ones that we might think are the most tolerant in our society. Here's an example. If you were a board member of the ACLU, which is an organization that uh, says it's for free speech and for tolerance, um, you would say, I'm a person who wants people to have as much freedom as possible. And the ACLU does some good things that we would agree with, they will, for instance, they will file lawsuits if a prisoner is denied the right to a chaplain. I think we would agree that that's a good thing. But they also think that you should have unlimited liberty and tolerance. But if you were on the board of this organization and you changed your mind about, let's just say, the issue of abortion, you probably wouldn't be a board member for very long after that. On the other hand, the Christian version of the ACLU, the ACLJ, which is, some people would say, is not as open-minded and tolerant. If you were a board member of that group and you changed your mind on abortion, you probably wouldn't be on that long. And here's the difference. One group says it's this tolerant, freedom-loving group. The other says, we have a more narrow definition. But both groups practice exclusion. And so it's just not true that you can do whatever you want. And so it's not unreasonable for Christians and for churches to have standards. It's not unreasonable for churches to say baptism is important, truth is important. But it doesn't mean that we just set those rules. What it means is, we set our rules as they align with the scriptures, and that's something upon which Christianity and the church has insisted upon for centuries. And really what Jesus is calling us to in this text, especially about freedom, is he's calling us to something deeper than seeking our own rights. In fact, he's saying, if you follow me, you actually have to give up your rights for the sake of others. He says later in the text, he talks about 
how you treat your enemies and how you treat your neighbor. And throughout the Bible, we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself. That's really hard. That is one of the hardest things to do. We have this tendency to think that when we love someone, that there's freedom, and there is. But love actually limits us because we give up for the sake of others. We, there's a sense of vulnerability about it. When you give up something for someone else, you are always limiting yourself because love is actually a very limiting thing. It limits your freedom because you are giving. Jesus models this in the Bible. And he models this in history because he limited himself for the sake of humanity. The, the Bible tells us that Christ became human and gave up for the sake of others. He sacrificed himself to bring salvation so that people like you and me can understand true love. Jesus says that greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus willingly gave himself so that people could experience God's love. And so one of the things that we have to understand is that love actually limits our freedom. But we know that, right? We know that when we deeply love someone, we willingly change for them. We want to please them. We find a sense of freedom. Uh, some of you are parents, and there are things you do for the sake of your children that you don't think twice about, where someone like me who does not have children would say, why are they doing that? They're giving up all kinds of time when they could be doing something else. But you're gladly giving up time and talent and money because you love someone. And the Bible says that we, when we know the love of God, when we understand the depth of Christ's love, that we actually find our true freedom in Christ because we give, up our, we give away ourselves for the sake of God. We give up ourselves for the sake of others. The Bible says that we are able to be truly human as we are in Christ, when we are in Christ. Because we don't have to stop and wonder, how do I fit myself and my life and my career in the way that my culture tells me I have to do that? It says, no, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. So Christianity, the church, does limit our freedom, but it's a freedom to love God and to love others. And so let's look at our second point, which is Christianity or the church and society. One of the things, I have a lot of non-Christian friends. In fact, um, last night at our house, uh, my wife and I threw a party for a bunch of graduate student friends of mine at the University of Oklahoma. 
And sometimes uh, the conversations, especially since I'm a, we're Christians and I work at a church, sometimes the conversations can be very interesting. And so last night did not disappoint whatsoever. Um, but when I get into these conversations with my friends, some of them have limited knowledge of the church, some of them grew up in church and they're not Christians, some of them are just atheists, you, you begin to hear arguments like this. They will say, well, it's, you're a nice guy, but the reason I'm skeptical about what you do is, man, the church is just so, it's just responsible for so much that's wrong in society. And then you say, well, let's talk about that. And they say, well, you know, Christians promoted the slave trade and Christians just repress women and minorities and Christians, they're just boring people that seem to make society even worse. Well, let's talk about that. And then they'll say, well, you Christians are always wanting to implement this religious agenda. It just seems like that's all you're after. And so what do you do with criticisms like that? Because you have to, those are serious questions. Is the church responsible? Are Christians responsible for what's wrong in the world? On one level, you can say, yeah, some people who have said that they're Christians have done terrible things. Um, others have engaged in terrible business practices. I remember growing up, well, no, I'll talk about that later. I'm getting ahead of myself. And I would say this, that Christians we generally don't celebrate the bad things that happen within the church. And when we go to the Bible, right, the Bible is really honest and, and sometimes brutal in how it portrays people. You don't ever find perfect people. Um, last year, we went through a series on the book of Judges. And like every single hero in Judges was incredibly flawed and did just terrible things. And the Bible shows us time and time again that God's people do bad things, but there's always repentance, that call to repentance, and there are even consequences to the things they do. And the Bible actually warns its followers, if you claim to follow Christ, if you're not loving people, if you, and you're not loving God, the Bible says you're probably not who you say you are. Something else, too, that I, that I tell my friends is if you're going to judge Christianity, all of Christianity based on the actions of some, then you have to be willing to subject what you believe to that as well. And so you can say there are people who have within the church who have done terrible, terrible things. The church has done a lot of good as well. It was churches who created the first hospitals and the first orphanages. It was, it was the church in the Roman Empire who, whose sexual ethics actually welcomed women to be members of the church at a time in which women were relegated the back room. 
It was Christians like Basil of Caesarea who were the first to speak out against slavery in the Roman Empire. It was churches who created the university. And it was, it was the churches who said that all work, all legitimate work, is valuable because the people who are engaging in work are created in God's image. And what we do here matters. And so you can't just say, well, Christians have done a lot of bad stuff because, and just leave it at that because there's a lot of good. Why? Why do we see these good stories? Because of this, the Bible calls all who follow God to be a blessing to this world. Abraham's call in Genesis, when God called Abraham in Genesis, he said, I will make you a blessing to the nations. In Isaiah 61, there's this scene that Isaiah paints for us when he's talking about those who would follow would be followers of this great Messiah who was to come. And, and he says that these followers would be the ones who rebuild ruined cities. He called them oaks of righteousness, this planting of the Lord who are a cool shade. And the imagery behind that is that those who follow Christ are empowered by him to love others. And to be this cool shade in the hot chaos of the world around us. What Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5 is that the basis for how the church and the basis for how Christians interact with the world around us is love. The guiding ethic of what we are called to do is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jeremiah 29, there's this scene in which there are these exiles going from Jerusalem to Babylon. They're going to enemy territory where they would be ridiculed and mocked. There would be temptation to hate their enemies, right? And yet God tells them, seek the peace and prosperity and the flourishing of your enemies. In fact, later in Matthew 5, from where we read, Jesus says, love your enemies. Don't pray for those who who spitefully use you. Jesus is calling us to be a blessing to the world around us. So one of the things, though, this sounds really neat right now, I think it does, is I don't want people to interpret my words by saying, so we're a blessing and that means we never speak out against what is wrong in society. In fact, there are times in history um, where churches experience what we might call revivals. And and the overflow of what happens within the walls of the church spills out into society. Um, people say that the Great Awakening is what birthed abolitionism. Um, there was a, a big revival after the Civil War with D.L. Moody, and people began to care for a lot of poverty. 
there's probably a revival that you may or may not have heard about. It happened in the 1950s, the mid-50s throughout the 60s, and it was in Mississippi and Alabama and, and places in the Deep South. It was not led by Billy Graham. Everyone's heard of Billy Graham, yes. But it was, it was led by people like this woman, Fannie Lou Hamer. Who has heard of her? That's what I thought. And this is a rare moment that a Presbyterian pastor says, can I get some hands, see those hands? Well, let me tell you about Fanny. She was the youngest of 20 children born to a sharecropping family in rural Mississippi right after the First World War. She grew up on a plantation during the 20s and 30s. In 1961, she was forcibly sterilized by a white doctor without her consent or knowledge. It was part of this initiative in Mississippi to reduce black births. But the story doesn't end there because during the 60s, Fanny was going from church to church in rural Mississippi in these little African-American churches where people were embracing Christ and new converts were growing and Fanny would sing hymns. She would go to these civil rights rallies and sing hymns. She would sing, Go Tell It on the Mountain. She would sing, This Little Light of Mine. Throughout the 60s, she was arrested several times and even beaten by police officers. But what's telling about her is she was asked in an interview, Do you hate all these, these white people that, that do these things to you? She said, no, why would I do that? She said, hatred is self-destructive. And she says, in fact, Christ calls me to love people, even the ones who hate me. In 1967, she was interviewed again. And this is at a moment uh, where the civil rights movement was getting very violent, right? It started out fairly nonviolent, but it's getting really violent in the late 60s. And there's a lot more non-Christian influence at the end of it. And she said this in an interview. She said, I still believe, and, and people around me make fun of me for saying this. She said, but I believe in Christianity. She said, I deeply believe that God calls me to love my neighbor as myself. So that's a big story, and I doubt most of us are going to help lead movements or have Wikipedia articles or get mentioned in books. In fact, most of real life is never recorded for the world to see, no matter how much we try to put it on Twitter and Facebook. People aren't going to know what we do, right? So what are we called to do? What are we called to do? Jesus is calling us in Matthew 5 to the great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what the scriptures teach about how we live in society. That's our primary motivation for how we are to work, to play, to interact with people around us, to learn, to worship, even to pay taxes, to be citizens. Jesus said this in John 17. He said, this is how the world knows that you are my disciples. If you have love 
for one another. So within the body, there is to be love. We willingly give up for the sake of those who are a part of us. And then towards those who are antagonistic toward us, Jesus said, bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And so there's a caution for each of us. If love is not our guiding motivation, no matter how successful, our greatest endeavors will be empty. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that someone can do amazing things and have amazing gifts, but if it is not done with love, it is meaningless. And so I think that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes the reason that churches and Christians get a bad rap, at least in the U.S., is because sometimes we react, right? We reach out or we respond in disgust to things that should make us respond in disgust, but without love as our primary motivation. And so here's the thing is we can disagree with people who are not part of us. And when we do it in love, that's awesome. Because love, the love of Christ is our foundation and it guides how we should live in our society. As the Apostle John said, we love because he first loved us. So, talked about freedom and society. Let's talk about hypocrisy, because that is the most exciting topic to talk about in a sermon, isn't it? People say, why are there so many hypocrites in church? I remember the 1980s, growing up and seeing um, fall, the rise and fall of the televangelists. Maybe you remember Jim Baker Jim and Tammy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, right? The, the sort of, um, this is called tax evasion. You know, seeing the doghouse with air conditioning and gold lining. That's pretty nice. These public scandals. In my own story, I have been in a, uh, I'm going to say this here. I can't say this in Oklahoma City. In my own story, the church that I grew up in, which is not Presbyterian, um, had its own share of scandals that were even covered up. Um, Tales of abuse, misconduct. I'm sure each of us, many of us in here, may have that story of the pastor who ran off with the secretary or whatever, or the pastor who was nice to people on Sunday and was not so nice Monday through Saturday. And then what do we do with the Westboro Baptist people, huh? Or people who criticize Christians for unethical business practices. And they say, well, if that's people who are in the church, man, it's not worth it. Those are hard questions, aren't they? Those are hard things to face. And I think when I'm talking with my non-Christian friends about this, 
I'm candid. I'm like, well, they're misrepresenting the Bible. They're not, they're not good representatives of Christ. And then what seems to harm that even more is we have this question that hangs over us. Does the Bible indicate that we get off the hook for our own hypocrisy? Is Christianity just a get-out-of-hell-free card like so many roadside church marquees tell us? What does the Bible say about hypocrisy? I'm going to consider a few places. In the Old Testament, there are warnings over and over from Genesis to Malachi saying that it is a fearful thing to be a hypocrite. Isaiah in chapter 29 says that God is against, quote, those who honor me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. Jesus actually refers to this in the Gospels. Joel in his first chapter He's looking and surveying the condition of the people of Israel, people who say they follow God, and he says, guys, the way you're living is going to bring judgment on you because you are dishonoring God, and you need to repent. Amos says that God despises the religious feasts and the worship of people who live like hypocrites. And the ending, toward the end of the Old Testament, if we read Malachi, Malachi is honest and he says, there are many around here, including priests, who are just robbing God. You are claiming his name, but you worship and live as if he is not there. And so the Bible is pretty serious about those of us who would say, I follow Christ. I belong to him. I'm a member of a church. The Bible is serious about people like us who say that and yet practice something differently. In fact, I think a scary place, because it's really honest, is Psalm 51, that Psalm of David where he confesses this great sin that he committed, actually lists of sins that he committed. And you see his fear in the beginning when he's crying out for mercy. And he says, don't cast your presence from me. He understood that God is serious about those who say they are his and yet live as it without regard for his holiness, goodness, mercy, and grace. When we go to the New Testament, we, especially in the Gospels, we know that Jesus' toughest words were against the religious hypocrites of his day. He said that if you tithe down to the most minute detail and you don't love people, it's really empty of you. He quotes Isaiah in Luke 15 when he's talking to the Pharisees about how they're so concerned about appearances and really don't give regard to their own hearts. And beyond the Gospels, the New Testament warns those who would claim to be a part of the church and yet live contrary to the teachings of the Scriptures. But to be fair, this is an extremely tough issue that Christians have wrestled with for centuries upon centuries. 
In fact, one of the earliest controversies after the apostles was about hypocrisy. Here's an example. In the early 300s, the emperor Diocletian, the Roman emperor, issued one of the worst series of persecutions ever. He ordered that all scriptures were to be burned. Any Christian building was to be destroyed. Any Christian symbol was to be destroyed. And every Christian needed to consent to some form of pagan worship or they would be killed. And so we have, from that persecution, we have those stories that you read about. Uh, if you read stories of martyrs, of you know, the, the people who were, and these things happen, the people who were put in bags with poisonous snakes and thrown into the river. And so you have these stories of heroism, right? But you also have stories of someone who said, huh, so all I have to do is take this, take a sprinkling of this water and put it on your little idol, and I'm okay? And I just don't need to worship for a while. I can do that. And they would do it. We also have stories of, of pastors and priests who left the town because they didn't want to die. They just went along. But when the persecution ended, the question came, what do we do with the, with the hypocrites? They want to come back. What do we do with them? And so some people said, well, the church is for pure people. Remember, Jesus says, be pure of heart, they would say. So if you want back in, we know you were baptized as a baby, but we want to rebaptize you. If you want back in, not only do you need to be rebaptized, but you need to perform these elaborate rituals in front of the rest of the congregation to show how sorry you are. And they said, the church is no place for hypocrites. Others said, and this was Augustine later, said, the church, it's a hospital. It's for the sick. It's for the needy. We have sinners and we have saints. And we need to welcome them back in because Christ extends his grace to the needy. And so his view won the day. But it also leaves us with a hard question. And I think it's the hardest thing about hypocrisy. When Jesus calls us to follow him, we think about it. It's impossible to follow him perfectly. If you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote, he said, Follow me, but only as I follow Christ. Even the great Apostle Paul recognized he could not follow him perfectly. Even more, if we think about this, when you talk to people who aren't Christians, right, sometimes, Christ, sometimes we who are Christians can get a bad rap for our hypocrisy. But if you ever talk to them about Jesus, if they believe he existed, they never say he was a hypocrite. There's something about Jesus in our culture where even those who don't believe he is God, there's something about him that is different. There's something about him that's honest and above the fray and that is approachable and likable. 
But then there's something about ourselves. We hate hypocrisy. And I think the reason that we hate hypocrisy so much is when we see someone act as a hypocrite, it reminds us that we ourselves are hypocrites to a degree, right? I think the reason that we, so a couple examples. It's fun for some people, if you're not an environmentalist, to make fun of the environmentalists who will drive the Prius, who recycles and then they buy an airplane ticket to go on vacation, right? It's fun if you're not an environmentalist, but maybe it's fun to make fun of the person who says, I believe in small government. The government shouldn't get involved. But then they own a business, and they're just fine with the government protecting their interests and getting involved. Hypocrisy bothers us because it confronts us with this reality. We cannot perfectly follow the standards that we hold. You will never find a perfect environmentalist. You will never find a perfect liberal or conservative. You won't find a perfect Christian, but here's the difference. Christianity offers this to hypocrites. Grace. Grace of that one who was never a hypocrite, Jesus. The Bible says that Christ came to die for sinners and that through his death and his resurrection, we have the opportunity to partake in his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness. And that God looks at us through Christ and he does not see that hypocrisy that we see in ourselves doesn't mean that we're okay with it. But it actually gives us a basis to speak against our own hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of others who say they are Christian. I want to close with this. Has anyone ever seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? There we go. See that hand. I'm not a fan of that bumper sticker because it seems like a way to talk around what we are called to be as Christians. Instead, I would propose an alternate bumper sticker. If you were to buy a bumper sticker, you know I don't like bumper stickers. But here's an alternative one. Christians aren't better than anyone else. Christians aren't better than anyone else. And the reason I say that is this. The Bible calls those of us who are Christians to live out our ordinary lives, loving God and loving others, as a response to his love for us. And so to be a Christian is to embrace God's goodness in spite of our own pride in spite of our own hypocrisy, in spite of our own sin, to be a Christian is to say that we embrace God's grace and goodness and our lives are a response to that. And so, to answer the question that we started with, is what we are doing today 
right now and throughout the week as parts of a, as part, members of a church or as Christians? Is what we do as Christians, is that a straitjacket? I would say no. I would say it is not a straitjacket, but we have an invitation to be a blessing to the world around us. It's our straitjacket. Amen. We have several responses. One is a response of commitment. And we'll do this in several ways. One will be do a question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. I will ask three questions individually and we'll answer them together individually. And then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So if the PowerPoint is ready, let me ask you this question. Does God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. God is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, God will punish them both now and in eternity, having declared Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but also just. God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Why is he called Christ? meaning anointed. Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, he fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal king who governs by, by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. 